Hello and welcome. I'm Alex Promos, Head of Institutional Content and Investment Magazine, and this is Market Narratives. This show is a series of unorthodox conversations with thought leaders influencing the world of fiduciary investors. For more related insights and analysis, please remember to check out our website, investmentmagazine.com.au, and subscribe for a free email. And with that, please enjoy this week's episode. So Jeff Hook, Senior Finance Lecturer at John Hopkins University, uh, part of the Cary Business School. Welcome to Market Narratives. My pleasure. Thank you for inviting me. You're welcome. You've written now a book uh, that's due to come out shortly, The Myth of Private Equity. But before we get into that, maybe let's go into your background and your history and what actually got you interested in private equity. Okay. Well, for starters, I've been in the private equity, investment banking, finance business for close to 40 years as a practitioner. So I started off as a private investor in New York City on Wall Street. I then moved into the investment banking business and I worked at you know a couple of big firms in New York. And then I left and went to the World Bank. And then I worked for a gigantic private equity fund that specialized in international finance. And then I went back into the garden variety investment banking business, primarily doing M&A, where I worked with a lot of private equity funds. I always had this intellectual or academic bent. I'd written several books when I was working at the World Bank as an investment banker on classic topics like equity analysis and mergers and acquisitions and international finance. So with that academic bent and the desire to cut my travel schedule, I moved into the academic world a few years ago at Johns Hopkins Carey Business School, where I teach corporate finance and similar uh, subjects. So what got me interested in private equity? Well, I had been doing some pro bono work in the pension fund area, looking at the substandard performance of the Maryland State Pension Fund, which is a gigantic institutional investor here in the United States. It runs about $55 billion. And so I was looking at that substandard performance as sort of a taxpayer advocate and written a number of papers. And I had sort of gotten drawn into the performance of alternative investments like private equity, hedge funds. When I moved to the academic side, part of the work, you know, really kind of voluntarily for for a lot of professors is to write academic papers. And having an interest in both state pension funds and private equity, I'd written several papers which pointed out, you know, that state pension funds and institutional investors in general are not beating public indexes, in the case of institution, a 60-40 index, 60% stock, 40% bonds is a good barometer. And then I also looked at how are they doing in alternative investments. And uh, to my surprise, I found out that hedge funds really didn't do so well. And private equity funds, despite all the fanfare and hype, you know, we're not beating the public markets. So you might say, well, why bother, you know, pursuing the matter further? I mean, maybe I'd like to punish myself, but I was reading a paper a couple of years ago, and it was another article about how great private equity funds were and how they were, as an American expression, hitting the cover off the ball in terms of returns. I knew that was a total fallacy. So I said, the heck with it. I'm not going to make any money doing this. I'm going to write an expose of the industry. And that's, that's essentially what the book is, an expose of the industry laying bare a lot of the fallacies and exaggerations. Look, I'm curious because ultimately you were on the other side of the ledger, right? You were promoting some of these private equity deals and and projects. 
when you were sitting on that side of the ledger, what were you telling people? What was the the interesting angle that you're using to encourage people then to get into private equity? In the private equity space where I was, we were trying to convince people this was an interest and much was more like the sales pitch you hear today. You know, we can beat the public market indexes as well as provide you a level of diversification that you won't get from buying public market indexes. This was maybe 15 or 20 years ago. So the sales pitch then was pretty much what you hear now. Now, 15 years later, the sales pitch is not nearly as valid. You know, a lot of things have changed in the last 15 years. And the book points that out. Whereas, say, in the late 90s, maybe early 2000s, private equity and what the book covers is principally the leverage buyout business. The leverage buyout business was doing a lot better than the public markets. You know, they were probably beating public markets by three, four, five percentage points in some cases. But what you often see on Wall Street, Alex, and I'm sure maybe some of your listeners in Australia and Asia recognize the same thing. When a sector does well, particularly in America, you know, there's a flood of money into the sector, you know, trying to repeat those premium returns. And that's really what happened to the leverage buyout business in the last 15 years. A flood of money went in because of the prior premium performance. You then had a lot of competition for the deals. There are only so many deals that fit the criteria of a leverage buyout. Prices got a little elevated and that hurt their returns. And of course, the other problem with the business from the investor standpoint is the fees are so high compared to say a public index, which is you know a fraction of a percentage point, whereas say the typical PE fund is charging 3% off the top. If you do the math, it's almost impossible for a collection of private equity funds to, to beat a public index these days. It's fascinating you talk about the impact of crowding. Uh, and we've seen that even in public markets that it's really hurt a lot of different strategies. You know, in particularly in this space, in, in in the private equity space, you're not only just competing against other players, but you're now competing against SPACs as well that are potentially at risk for, for taking deals off the table. Yeah, I mean, SPACs aren't so active in the LBO business. There have been a few SPACs that have taken over, you know, good possible LBO candidates. So they do a lot of VC deals. But you're right, you know, so you've got a limited category of firms that are eligible for buyouts, and you've got a lot more people circling trying to buy them. The other issue, which I think you're trying to mention, is you've got strategic players as well that are bidding against the buyout firm. So not that the level of M&A among strategic buyers has increased, it's always been there, but you've got a lot of competition for you know, a, a sort of a finite number of deals, particularly in the LBO space, because you know, out of say 100 potential M&A deals, maybe 20 or 25% might fit the criteria for a leveraged buyout in the United States. I'm curious to get a feel for why do you think that they've been struggling to beat the public markets? Because some of the, the story or the sales pitch alongside private equity is that these are unique businesses growing quite quickly. Uh, it's got great management, but yet they still manage to struggle to beat the public markets. Well, it's not that the companies are bad companies. In leverage buyout space, these companies have been successful for years. So they have a steady, they're low tech, they have low debt. They have a steady record of profits. So it's not like they're lousy companies or the management's incompetent. No, quite the contrary. They're successful. They often have good brand names and a terrific customer base. The issue is that 
the buyout community because of the you know because of the competition just paying too much. So they're paying too much. And as I said a minute ago, as you combine that with the very high fees, it's just almost a near impossibility for them to beat the public market. Now that's okay from the private equity fund manager's point of view. They're making tons off the fees and not really delivering premium performance. So what the book tries to explain is, you know, that basic fact pattern. You know, the beginning of the book sort of describes how the business works and, you know, how you you know, work a private equity fund on a day-to-day basis. And I get into numbers and the performance and that sort of thing. But then probably a third of the book is how has the myth been perpetuated for the last 15 years? So I think that is interesting in and of itself, you know, how for 10 or 15 years, this, this myth has been perpetuated. And there's, you know, a bunch of reasons for that, which the book goes into, and we can go into now if you like. Yeah, I think that would be be great, because I think there's still uh, a real vibe around PE, particularly in Australia, that it's a, it's a great opportunity set, and it offers you uh, even diversification. They're saying there's some unique deals that you can get access to through it. Um, they find the public markets as being overvalued, and their private private equity space gives them actually better valuation. So there's some of the common uh, themes that are being pushed in the you know in the media narrative. Yeah, well, we can get to the media later. Let's let's kind of talk about sort of how the business, you know, some of the elements of the business that have allowed or allowed the bit, the myth to be perpetuated, the myth of great returns and, you know, uh, lower risk than the public markets, which is, again, a urban pipe dream. So the business, as the private equity name connotes, is private. It's A lot of the results are confidential. So it's a little hard to do an investigative piece on this. If you really don't know the ins and outs of the data services and how the business works. So the private equity funds themselves are not going to tell the people. The other thing that your listeners ought to be aware of, at least in the United States, is that since the last dozen years, 60% of the elbow deals have not been sold. People are not buying what the buyout funds own. So if these things were so great, the returns were so terrific, how come nobody wants to buy the companies that they own? So, you know, they, it's easy to buy in the M&A business, a lot tougher to sell. So they haven't been able to really sell a lot of the companies. So how do they say, well, our returns are so terrific? Well, for the 60% of the inventory that isn't sold, the private equity firms basically get to mark to market or put on values for their financial statements and the financial returns that they set themselves. Now, there is some bit of a smell test by the fund auditors to look to see if the valuations are reasonable, but the big four, you know, would audit most of the U.S. LBO firms really don't have the resources or the budget to do an in-depth audit of each valuation of a private equity fund. So, let's take your typical buyout fund in the United States might have 10 or 15 investments. And, you know, since I've done valuation consulting and written reports for private equity firms, I can tell you uh, sort of a a thorough valuation of a privately owned company with a complicated capital structure like a buyout firm, you know, might cost 30 or 40 grand. So if you're looking at 10 or 15 companies that have to be evaluated every six or 12 months, you know, the bill to a moderate-sized private equity complex of 250 or $300 million 
could easily bill six, seven hundred thousand dollars a year. They don't want to pay it. So there are rules that let them get away with a much more casual evaluation of each individual business. So they've been able to mark to market kind of their own inventory. It's and I liken the process to a, a third grader grading her own homework. I mean, that sounds ridiculous on its face. If I let all the kids in my corporate finance class grade their own exams, they'd all get A pluses. I mean, but that's the way it works in the private equity business. There's just a bunch of third-party supervision on these valuations. So for the last 10 or 15 years, they pointed out, you know, that they're doing great. But as I said, a lot of things have not been sold. And the myth continues, which is not really the way one would expect an efficient capital market, supposedly, like the United States has to operate. But it no one's really pointed this out. I may be the first one, but there, you know, there are some other some skeptics out there. They don't get a whole lot of publicity, but you know, there are some skeptics out there. The other thing which is the pill, you know, the secondary pillar of the marketing strategy, which you referred to a few minutes ago, is the less volatility or you know, for a layperson, less risk in the private equity or leverage buyout business. So if you look at a track record of their returns, you'll see that during a market crash, the leverage buyout business set would say that the value of their equity declines less than the public market, which turns classic financial theory on its head, turns it upside down. Because classic financial theory says if you have a leveraged asset and the market collapses for that asset, then the value of the leveraged equity should decline far more than the value of the unleveraged equity. So, you know, for some of your listeners, I'll, I'll just point out, say, a real estate parallel. So you, let's say you bought a house in the United States for $200,000 and then the real estate market collapses like it did, you know, eight or nine years ago. So your $200,000 house declines in value by $50,000 from $200,000 to $150,000. Now, if you had borrowed 75% of the purchase price, you had borrowed $150,000 and the house dropped in value to $150,000. Well, you could still cover the mortgage. The mortgage would cover the debt, but your equity would be wiped out. It would be zero. So a leveraged house investment would decline from... 50,000 equity to zero. Whereas if you paid full price in cash, total equity, you, you know, you'd only have a 30% loss. I mean, 25% loss. So you'd have a 25% loss for the unleveraged house and a 100% loss for the leveraged house. So that is something you learn usually in the first four or five weeks of corporate finance class, but it has been totally ignored in the mark the market practices of the LBO industry, if you look at aggregate statistics on this basis. So the book sort of points out, you know, the fallacy or exaggeration in investment returns over the last 15 years, and then points out the unreliability of the mark-to-market since it refutes classic theory on leverage and the value of equity. So the two main pillars of leverage buyout business here in the States, one would be higher returns and two would be less risk, are just not true. It's that simple. It's also interesting when you think about the mark-to-market approach that that also has a very 
direct impact on the IRRs that these funds are reporting in terms of their performance. So the two actually go together. There's a clear incentive to 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 manage those. And you know the funny thing, I, when I was doing some research, so I was looking at uh, the Maryland Pension Fund. You know, it was buying a new, you know, like equity fund seven of a company that you know, a fund manager that had seven funds, and so how do they? base their evaluation, they sort of, if you read the report, they said, well, fund six has done so well, we want to buy fund seven. But the fact of the matter was that none of the deals had been sold in fund six. So, you know, the the entire analysis was based on sort of mark to markets. And I presume the investment consultant hired by the pension fund rubber stamp, you know, whatever numbers that private equity fund manager had provided to it. I don't know if they did any independent tire kicking or due diligence, but you know, most investment consultants you talk about this with will say, well, we don't have the budget to go in and do a thorough analysis of each underlying acquisition of a buyout fund, which you know strikes me as rather odd having done due diligence on many MA deals and you know private equity deals myself, but that seems like it's SOP, standard operating process in that business, which may alarm some of your listeners, but it happens to be the truth. Yeah, it's really quite interesting because ultimately, if it keeps staying off market, you're assuming that that price is is valid. And we've seen a couple of anecdotal bits of evidence of companies that were private who have then come to, to public market in the PE space that have had some very significant markdowns, 20, 30, 40%. Um, and so without that sunlight test of public markets, it's very hard to know what the underlying valuations of these businesses are. Yeah. And of course, the ultimate referees, since the investment consultants don't have the budget, as I said, would be the auditors of the funds. But you got to think hard that the auditors of the fund are getting paid by the funds themselves. I mean, I get, you know, when I've talked to auditors about this, I mean, some of them will stick their neck out, certainly for sure, when the, you know, the valuation is obviously excessive, but it's when it's around the margins, maybe 10 or 15% in value. I don't think they're going to be a hero and endanger the relationship with the client. So this aspect of the business lives on. Now, the ultimate guardian of the financial markets or the customer's interest in this, I suppose, would be the Securities and Exchange Commission here in the United States, you know, whose primary objective is the public markets, but there's also a very small division devoted to the public-private markets, which, in my opinion, has been practically inactive for the last 15 years. It's interesting because, you know, what, what can they do, right? If there's 3,000 LBO funds that are out there, how can the SEC have really any control of, of all those groups? It's just going to be, have to be luck of the draw to find out any problems. Yeah, I mean, there's 3,000 that are still in operation that report to the data services. I mean, at seven, it would be truly you know active where they're actively looking for deals. The other 2,300 would be kind of filled up. But the other thing that your listener, you know, so that's a lot of that's a lot of funds looking for deals, seven hundred, and you know, for as you point out, the regulatory resp- responsibility for three thousand, you know, you would need hundreds of new employees at the SEC, and they could charge fees to each fund for the audit function of the SEC, but you know, that would have to go through Congress and all that sort of thing. But you do have seven hundred actives. Just point out one other, you know, small factoid of interest to your audience is. The data services that provide the returns like Prequin or P 
pitch book and you know there's a few others that your listeners probably know or even so even subscribe to they only catch about 60 percent of the funds so the other 40 percent are just out there you know making claims and it's a little hard to verify how well they're doing are they in the top quartile and the bottom quartile and so on it'd be interesting you know to have some kind of mechanism to suck up or draw up all 100 percent because being a bit of a cynic having spent so much time in wall street type jobs why don't those 40 percent report what do they got to hide well, they might say well i don't have to report i'm doing so well but i'm just a little skeptical <laughs> that's a very funny one uh typically when people don't report there's usually something that's uh that's amiss because they obviously want the publicity. And I know that uh, the Prequin and, and I think it's Eve Esman as well, the returns that come through those those services are really critical for, for flows, for distribution flows. So, Yeah, exactly right. I mean, they the, the services have a high degree of credibility. But if you talk to them as I did, you, they will admit, look, we only capture 60%. We are highly reliant on what the private equity funds tell us in terms of mark the market of the portfolios. And if you... You know, I just was reading a recent study that said, you know, showed that uh, as a fund gets older, the the returns that it forecasts gradually decline, which would suggest that, you know the market, the mark, mark, the market values were a little optimistic in the early years when perhaps they were thinking of raising another fund. Another thing which might be of interest to your listeners is the top quartile phenomenon. If you talk to serious institutional investors, they're they're, they're going to tell you, okay, look, uh, you know, I've read some of the reports and I know that, yes, you know, a lot of PE funds are not beating the public markets. But if you look at the top quartile or the top 25%, they, they beat the public markets you know, by several percentage points, whereas maybe the bottom 75% do not, which is, again, a startling statistic. So, they will tell you with a straight face that I can pick for my own institutional portfolio, 10, 20, 30 billion, whatever, I can pick the top 25% of the PE funds. If you look at some of the research that's been done, I mean, up to 75% of the LBO funds claim they're in the top quartile. I mean, how is that possible? So it's a little bit like the author Garrison Keillor's Lake Will Be Gone, where every child is above average. I mean, so there's a real life parallel to that in the buyout business. So you you have different measurements, which I think we should get to for the benefit of your audience. There's several ways of measuring your performance, but somehow, you know, up to 75% of the funds can claim they're in the top quarter. I mean, if you were looking at a horse race, our World Cup, you'd have a hard time picking a winner that way. It reminds me of uh, when you ask people what their driving ability is like uh, and giving <laughs> them a rating. But uh, I'm curious. Well, on the golf course, everybody's got a you know 15 handicap until they actually get out there and you watch them play. Uh, it's a, it's a, one of those phenomena that uh, people always overestimate. But I'm curious then, how do you then speak to institutional investors as they think about you know, potentially allocating to PE, what are, the, what are the sort of things that they should be looking for? What metrics should they be looking for to try and work out where things are, are likely to perform better or not? They have to realize that the performance of any given new buyout fund is pretty random. Therefore, I, if I was advising a big institutional investor, I would say don't, don't get involved with the buyout business at all. Maybe you can try VC, but 
The buyout business is totally random. It's not beating the public market. You cannot pick the top quartile. So what's if you talk to big institutions and they say, well, how do you pick the, you know, the new fund? If you know, there's fund number eight for some family of funds, you're looking at fund number eight. You know, a lot of them will look at, well, how did fund number seven do? But there's no statistical connection between fund seven and fund eight. If fund seven was in the top quartile, the statistical probability of it being in the top quartile for fund number eight is 25%. There's no what's called persistence in the business, though it's almost a random type thing. The other way they do it, and again, this is not surprised to any of your listeners, but you know, the other way you pick a private equity fund is you're going to look at the reputation of the sponsor. So you get the biggest brand name you can find, like the Apollo Group or Blackstone Group, and you say, well, everybody else is going into that one, so they must be top quartile. I mean, my research shows that, you know, the top brand name funds, the top 15 or 20 families do about the same as the average, but that doesn't really stop anybody from, you know, piling money into these guys because they got a good brand name. So both the historical approach and the brand name approach are not going to reward your listeners who think that they got to go into buyout business to kick up their returns. I think the best option for them is to try to get keep expenses as low as possible. As, as researchers have done in America, including myself, if you look at the performance of state pension funds, which would be you know, very large to what you might have in Australia, but the largest state pension fund in America is the state of California. It's got like 400 billion under management. So if you look at the performance of state pension funds over a long period of time, if you look at the performance of university endowments, if you look at performance of large foundations over the next 10 or 15 years, none of them consistently beat a 60-40 index, 60% stocks, 40% bonds, all public. They can't do it. They do not do it, which may sound amazing to a lot of people listening, but it happens to be the truth. Well, it's also fascinating because you'd think with the amount of leverage that does sit within these buyouts that they should actually be earning a higher return given the expected uh, return that should come from this high level of risk that's implicit in the investment. I totally agree. And that's the way it was when it first started. The first 10 or 15 years, these buyout funds did very well because the effect of leverage enhanced upward equity returns of the stock market was climbing and M&A or private equity values have a high correlation to public market values. So it was working. But as I said a few minutes ago, the problem became as more money piled into the sector, you simply had too much competition for deals, elevated the price, cut the returns. And that combined with the very high fees, you know, just killed the golden goose. One example is just the fixed fees on the buyout fund are going to be 15% of the money you dedicate to the fund. So if you're, you know, just use American football analogy, you know, you're starting 15, 20 yards behind the other team every time. It's just too tough an amount to hurdle over. I mean, I give them credit for trying. The fund managers made billions of dollars and some of them have gotten very rich. And a lot of it's off the fixed fees, you know, not so much the carry interest, but which for your listeners, the carried interest is the profit participation. So they've done very well. The investors in the last 15 years have not. 
Yeah, it's a it's a really interesting place because people still are uh, enamoured by the space. It's it's seen as sexy. It's got this uh, unique angle to it, and obviously the returns don't seem to stack up. Well, look, look. Let me. You know, you're getting into why do people still do it? I mean, why people still want to go into private equity when you know certainly the last few years have unveiled evidence that the returns and the diversification or the risk profile is not accurate. Why do they do it? Okay, so I get that question from a lot of people. And the reason, there's several reasons. I think the main reason is job preservation. So in the last 15 or 20 years, big institutional money managers, some of you may be listening on this call, a lot of big institutional money managers, the job's gotten supposedly more complex, more sophisticated. So the compensation for these individuals has gone up. And you know, so is the staffing. A lot of big institutions have a you know, private equity fund staff. So if you were to tell the trustees, well, we're not beating a 60-40 index, private equity is not beating the S&P 500 in the United States, the hedge funds aren't beating a 60-40. I think we don't just fire everybody and index everything. Well, what's going to happen to their job? These people have mortgages, they have wives, they have kids. You can't expect them to walk away from a job that's paying, you know, multiple six figures. So the number one reason I think is job preservation. So, you know, you might say, well, that's a violation of fiduciary duty, but that's sort of an obscure legal type term that nobody really pays much attention to. I mean, the other factor would be there are some true believers out there, you know, that would say, oh, they can, they can really hammer it. They can really beat it. You know, those people you know, maybe are kidding themselves. I mean, then the other one is, is what I refer to as the Stockholm syndrome, where a lot of institutional money managers, they go to these conferences, and you've probably been to a few of them yourself, and they hear all this great thing about private equity. You know, they go out to lunch with private equity types or Wall Street types that sell funds, and they get captured. They get captured. For, and for those of your listeners that don't know what the Stockholm syndrome is, it's it's when you know a number of people were taken captive in Stockholm 20 or 30 years ago by bank robbers, and they were kidnapped essentially for two or three days. And when the men were put on trial, the, the, the victims of this crime testified on their behalf, even tried to raise money for their defense. So they allied with their captors, much as I say the institutional money managers are now allied with the buyout fund managers in the United States. It's a remarkable uh, situation to behold. It's a total refutation of efficient capital markets, but you know, that's the way it is. Is there also a bit of a halo from the Yale Endowment effect and David Swanson? I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah, the whole industry was really pushed forward by the Yale Endowment model, which was basically put forth by Swenson, who, uh, who was probably one of the first you know, well-publicized endowment managers to show that, you know, you could have superior returns by going into alternatives, principally private equity. I mean, the state of Washington Pension Fund and the state of Oregon also were early adopters of that approach. Uh, He got the most success. And, you know, Wall Street is an area where there aren't a whole lot of leaders. There are a lot of copiers. So a lot of people copied his success. And I guess the early adopters did pretty well. But, you know, after, say, the year 2000, 2002, 2003, I mean, it's, it hasn't been downhill, but 
they just haven't been able to beat the indexes or really show a future ability to do so. Mm-hmm. But that endowment model became very popular, both because it promised something good and it also led to increased compensation for the institutional money managers. I mean, if even if you look at Yale for the last 10 years, maybe this is a chilling testament, but for the last 10 years, the Yale Endowment Fund has not beat a 60-40 index. The, the final question I wanted to ask you was around venture capital, because venture capital as a term is somewhat synonymous with private equity in Australia. Is there something different that we see within venture capital in terms of performance and maybe return persistence? Okay, for those of your viewers who are not too familiar, the buyout business is you, know, you buy established companies, buy the whole company. It's a company that's been around for you know, 20 or 30 years. It's got an established brand name, established track record, established profit. So it's very conservative, boring type of business. Venture capital, on the other hand, the business is much younger in the development phase. Most of them are not companies that are being started out of the garage. They'd be a little further along, but you know they don't have a product line that's demonstrably uh, successful. They do not have established profit base. So they have a lot of potential, most of which is unproven, I suppose. So venture capital is obviously, from what I just said, is it's going to be a lot more risky. There's going to be a lot more strikeouts than home runs. And if you look at, say, the typical buyout portfolio, about three out of 10 provide most of the positive return. I'm not saying the returns above the stock market. I'm just saying positive return. You probably have three or four bankruptcies out of 10 and two or three that do okay. The buyout business is much more random. You know, out of 10 deals, the buyout fund might have one, you know, terrific Uber type situation that goes up a thousand percent or something. And then, you know, seven or eight are bankrupt and maybe one or two are okay. So it's a totally different sort of approach. One that tends not to beat the S&P 500 as well. Nonetheless, there are some funds that would be less random. You know, there would be some that have better results that can be repeated. So some of them, if they are in the top quartile for fund seven, will also have a pretty good chance of being in the top quartile or top half for fund eight, which you tend not to see so much in the buyout business. So the venture business is a little more persistent, uh, I guess you'd call it, than say the buyout business. Exactly why that happens, I don't know, because I, I really don't have the depth of knowledge of the venture business uh, compared to the buyout business. But I'm sure there's some concrete, concrete reasons for that. Well, you've left the audience with some green shoots of a potentially positive place to, to allocate money. Uh, Jeff Hook, thank you very much for your time today. My pleasure, Alex. Thanks again. Thank you for joining us. All views expressed on this podcast are subject to change and do not necessarily reflect the views of Connexus Financial. This podcast is for educational purposes only and should not be relied upon as investment advice.